podcast, Alexandra Levitt talks about the changing landscape of work through emerging workforce. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Work 2.0 podcast. Today we have with us Alex Levitt. Uh, she is a business and workplace author and working with people results. Her goal is to prepare organizations and their employees to be competitive and marketable in the future business world. A former nationally syndicated columnist of Wall Street Journal and writer of for the New York Times, Fast Company and Forbes, Alex has authored several books including international bestseller They Don't Teach Corporate in College and Humanity Works, uh, Merging People and Technologies for the Workforce of the Future. So with that, um, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, beautiful. So I think one thing that I, I really um, loved about uh, your background and your journey is uh, obviously when, when you, whenever you talk about futurists, you talk about like it's fascinating to see how they are um, sort of compiling uh, what the world is and where the world will be for, for all of us to understand. So love to understand your journey, like what you brought, what brought you to, to this point? Sure. Well, it actually got started way back in 1988. When I was 12 years old, I was growing up in Washington, D.C., outside the headquarters of the World Future Society. And my dad and I were really into science fiction, and we decided to take a tour. So we went down the block, and we walked around, and we learned about technologies that they thought were going to be hot around now, around 2020. And there was this one technology called interactive TV. It was so cool. You would have a device, and everyone would have their own, and you would push a button, and you'd be able to instantaneously hear the song. You'd been waiting all day for the radio to play. And I was hooked at that time. I was like, this stuff is cool. And if you think about it, they were right about interactive TV. Hmm. We have it now. And in fact, some might even argue that it's the precursor for the smartphone, where we can dial up anything that we want to hear, consume uh, on our own automatically. So that was how I got started in my futurist interests. And then fast forward about 20 years or so, I was having a tough time adjusting to the business world after graduating as a high achieving student. And what I did then after finally taking some professional development and improving my chances of getting promoted and learning the importance of diplomacy and getting along with other people, I wanted to write a book for other 20 somethings on how to be successful in the business world. And that was when I wrote the first book that I published called They Don't Teach Corporate in College which has since been published in about four, it's, we have a fourth edition coming out this year in about 12 languages. And much to my pleasure and surprise, that initial book did well. And I, I started getting asked to do a lot of speaking engagements around the world about young professionals and the business issues that they were facing. So I was doing that for a couple of years. I wrote a few more books. I wrote for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And then I noticed something interesting happening. People were starting to ask me what I thought was coming next. And just having been in the space for a while, I mean, they say longevity is everything. And just having been around, I made some, I suppose, educated forecasts. Futurists don't like to call them predictions, but some educated forecasts on how demographics would shift and how careers would shift and, and how workforce generally would, would change up to around 2030. And so that picked up steam. And I started getting asked to do a lot more speaking around that. 
And next thing I know, I'm branding myself a futurist and putting out a book called Humanity Works, <laughs> which is my <laughs> new book on the future of work that's just out a few months ago. So that's my journey. I always am looking for ways. And one of the things that I tell people, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, you have to be learning agile. You have to be mm -hmm. constantly looking at the market, where are things going, how can I con contribute in a meaningful way. And that's what I'm doing with Humanity Works. And that's what I'm going to continue to do when, when I think about what's next. Interesting. And, and, and let's talk about your typical day. Like what, what's your typical day today look like? My typical day is not all that typical. <laughs> I know that that's, uh, that's probably something you hear commonly from entrepreneurs. But um, last week I was in London doing an international book tour for Humanity Works. So I was going around to um, the London Book Fair, to companies, to conferences, and meeting people, talking about the book, doing some media. This week, uh, last night I did another speaking engagement that's local here in Chicago where I live. I have to write an article today um, for a publication. I'm doing this podcast with you. I actually recorded another podcast earlier this morning. Um, and I answer a lot of email. <laughs> and I promote the book. I'm on social media. So, yeah, that's probably a typical day. And I have kids, so can't forget about them. That's a hustle. No. So cool. Yeah. Okay. So and 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 before we jump into the the meaty stuff, what is people results? If you can walk us through, what what exactly is this? That's a great question. So people results is an organizational change firm, and it encompasses about twelve to thirteen partners, all of whom have a lot of experience in the world of human capital consulting, and we all work together on clients, I suppose. Um, <laughs> you know, none of us have all the same clients, but we'll collaborate and say a project is a little bit bigger than one of us can take, then we might staff it with several people. We also have a lot of consultants that work with us. So they might not be an official member of the firm, but they're like associates of the firm. And uh, we are a virtual team. So mm -hmm. we all work out of our homes. Um, we have a, a good many people. It's just a U.S. firm right now. We have a good many people in both Dallas and Chicago, and then there are some people who are located elsewhere too. Okay, uh, that's fascinating. So um, let's talk about um, your journey. Like, so a journey with respect to what? So take us into the into the into the life of a futurist. So what does what does that entail? Well, for me, the life of a futurist, I know a lot of futurists come out of academia where they might have an adjacent area of expertise that might, you know, they might not be, they didn't start off as futurists, in other words. Um, for me, it really just involves a lot of reading, a lot of paying attention to what's going on, looking at the market, looking at what companies are doing, and trying to discern patterns mm -hmm. of things that you keep hearing about that are percolating up through the marketplace and have the potential to cause real disruption and making forecasts around that. So an example of, of how I have done that in the past is when I first published They Don't Teach Corporate in College, I was talking to a new generation of 20-somethings that was called the millennial generation. And at the time, nobody really cared all that much about millennials because they were just considered to be 20-somethings like any other. Mm. But I was looking at them and noticing that they were starting to make waves in greater 
numbers and in more significant ways than prior generations when they were the same age. Mm -hmm. And so I gradually started giving forecasts about what was going to happen to this generation of young workers. And sure enough, within a couple of years, I mean, it was early at that time, 2004, but uh, within a couple of years, the majority of them had entered the workforce and were mm. really making quite a splash. So um, that was a, an example of a forecast that ended up being correct. And I still to this day get calls to talk about millennials. And usually it's in the context of them being those junior level employees. And what I try to explain to companies is your millennials are leaders now. The oldest <laughs> ones are 40. So mm. you need to be thinking about them in different ways. And that's what um, what we do when I advise them is and think about them. And, and, and what, are, what are you seeing uh, nowadays, uh, some of the common struggles that business are facing today when it comes to dealing with their, this new emerging workforce? Well, I think, I think there's a couple. Um, the boundaries between personal and professional lives, where do you draw the line, mm -hmm. I think is a problem. How to figure out what you're going to automate in your workforce and what you're not going to automate and how you build effective human-machine hybrid teams that are going to leverage the strengths of both the machine and the human. I think managing teams of contract workers um, or freelancers or people that are working remotely, how do you design office spaces that are effective, that people want to go to so that you can occasionally encourage people to meet up in person? And how do you integrate artificial intelligence into existing business processes? So I think there's a lot of things at play. And what I like to tell companies is, look, you don't have to overhaul your organization to solve these problems in total immediately. Um, but if you just do a small thing with a small group of people, test it out, see what kind of business results you get, you could, um, you could go far. And really, it's just small actions that add up to big progress. Interesting. And, and, and what are what are some of the um, uh, some of the leading trends you are seeing that um, that that is shaping um, this new or, or this new landscape? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the rise of the contract workforce for sure. It's increasing automation. It's shifting demographics in terms of who's available to work and where. So we're seeing a lot of teams being staffed by people from all around the world, not just in your immediate geographic location any longer. Um, obviously, globalization, everything having more of a global spin than we've seen in the past. Um, especially here in the U.S., we've always been, this has annoyed me, but it's, it's just mm. the fact, we've always been very U.S.-centric. And I'm seeing a lot less of that now, thankfully. Mm. So that's a good thing to see um, in the market. I think um, human skills, emphasis on the skills gap, particularly with respect to technology, and how are we going to continue to keep up when technology is evolving so quickly, the customization of the individual career is another trend. There's no such thing as going from point A to point B. It's all about going wherever you want and developing cross-functional expertise and adjacent skill sets. Um, that's another one. Um, 
transformational leadership is a different leadership mm-hmm. style that um, is really, it, I, I think it, it comes about from A, the millennials coming in and wanting to have more influence at a younger age, and B, the, the fact of uh, inclusion emphasis, diversity and inclusion, people want to be considered important, they want their perspectives to be valued regardless of the background they come from or how much tenure they have in an organization. And so that's leading to, to leaders needing to be more receptive to different points of view, different ways of doing things, more innovative approaches that haven't been tried before. And so that's called transformational leadership. And we see it replacing that typical command and control, autocratic, top-down decision-making mentality. So those are just a few. Interesting. And uh, I think, and one thing that I, when I think about the futurist, right? So one thing that, that, that we can think about is, so if, if you look at um, strategy for a, for a big corporation, right? So typically, typically trends dictate the strategy. So big trends cause big spends and then, and, and then the businesses start investing in that. But mm-hmm. the disruptions comes when these trends collide, when these trends interact and, and those are the uh, pretty much like the corners where, where most of the innovations happen, where most of the dis- disruption happens and futurists have a, have a good enough vantage point. Um, mm-hmm. on, on that cracks on those opportunities or those sort of those inter- interactive spots. But mm-hmm. when you when you talk to when you talk about businesses, they are not they're not very mature uh, at figuring out at least uh, all these uh, interactions uh, happening and just un- under their belt. And and on that, futurists play a big enough role. But that's a con it's it's a constant hustle between um, what. Uh, an expert or or an outside watchdog understands and what a business could incept like what's what's your take in 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 this in this um, dichotomy like what 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 have been what have you seen from your vantage point um what have i seen and can you i'm not sure i totally understand the question so so basically when when you see yourself right uh, you you are a researcher you are an uh, an outside watchdog on the industry and with the, with the future is happening right. and when you look at the organizations they are relying on major trends how the major trends are working but they don't have a good enough vantage point on right it, okay. this interactivity on the trend so how would their response like how, how and 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 the the interaction between an expert outside watchdog and the business is always struggling just because yep. of this, uh, this the the, yeah. the the variant focus that they, that they are they're relying on. So, what is your what okay. is your perspective on that, and and how could we yep. improve that? Yeah. So, one thing I'm seeing happening is a lot of organizations combating this problem by developing in-house innovation teams, or even some some have gone as far as to develop future of work practices uh, inside the organization. I think one thing that's critical to remember, though, is just because you set this up doesn't mean that your people that are working in it have the expertise. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, especially if that's a new department or a new team, you need to bring in someone like me to help you with it, to make Mm -hmm. sure that you've got the right information, the right research, the right tools at your disposal. So I'm all for doing this in-house, and I think every company should be focusing on it to some degree, and that those people should get paid to basically make forecasts about what's going to happen with the business next. They shouldn't have to generate their own business necessarily. This is something I see happening with a lot of these groups is, oh, by the way, you know, we're going to use you as a sales tool because you're cool and clients want to hear from you. It's, but that's not really the point. This information is all really interesting, but it's not to sell clients on how smart you are. It's how you can be smarter so your business thrives and succeeds in, in the future workforce. So um, that would be what I would say. I would say if you're going to have an in-house team, great. If you can't 
have an in-house team, bring somebody in to just advise on your business. I mean, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Futurists generally work alone. It's not like you're hiring Deloitte or McKinsey. I mean, you could mm -hmm. hire those ones too, but mm -hmm. you don't have to. There's no need to do that because a lot of people are solo practitioners like me and who are perfectly happy to come in and do one-on-one -on -one consulting with a leader or even with an individual team and uh, just get that third-party perspective and, and make sure you take it to heart, I think. Like, I never go into any consulting or speaking engagement without very practical to-dos that I'm mm -hmm. telling people, all right, I'm giving you some interesting information now that I'm glad you stayed awake while I told you. And now I'm going to tell you, here's what you need to do when you leave. Well, don't, uh, don't skimp on that stuff mm. because that's, that's the meat of it. It's not just hearing about it and being entertained. It's doing something so that you can be better in the long run. Both, and I tell companies, it's both your company and yourself. People forget about it. They're like, oh, what if my company's not going to be there? Well, that's a very real concern mm. that your company might not be around or you might not be working there. So what are you going to do for your own career? And any kind of focus on workforce futures is good for anyone who wants to have a gainful employment for the next 10 to 15 years. So look at it that way. Look at it as being good for you in addition to being good for your organization. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. I think that's that's a that's a very fascinating and, and fair point. I think what even we see from from our vantage point, um, if if you look at the board board of directors, right? So there there is a reason why you have an independent board of director, right? Their their perspective is he he or she brings a very um, sort of a uh, non-nuanced and but a high vantage point perspective in, into the ecosystem, right? So they had they are not having a very fair, any specific bias on any particular major trend and they can understand a, a very wide slew of, of, of interactivity uh, that, that goes mm -hmm. on. So from that point of view, I think I do appreciate um, and uh, to our listeners and viewers, uh, it's I think it's very critical and and whenever we talk to any particular team, we we talk to them about this this concept of hey, you need an independent watchdog um, talking to you yeah. and interacting with because they they have they have an unbiased edge that that you need at the, at least it's just a n plus one th um, uh, feedback, but that that feedback is critical for you too. So I do appreciate you um, uh, helping out with that. So now I, I want I want your perspective on this new emerging keyword we hear about is uh, distributed decision management, right? So we are seeing holacracy, we're seeing various um, uh, model emerging nowadays, which are dis dissing this idea of hierarchical organization and saying, make it more flat. What are you seeing from, from your vantage? Like what are you seeing uh, in, in, the, in, in different organizations you have dealt with? Well, that's definitely happening. Uh, we are seeing many more organizations move to more holocratic models where there are no titles, where everyone is equal. And I think, again, and not to keep going back to the millennials, but as the millennials enter leadership positions, this is partially due to their influence. They don't necessarily mm. think that tenure has anything to do with what you should be able to contribute in an organization. And you shouldn't have to get promoted up through levels and levels of bureaucracy in order to be able to get a project off the ground or have a say in an important decision. So part of this is due to them coming in and saying, look, I." 
I have a team, but there's nothing that makes me better or more important than that team. Everybody is is equal. And so that's where you see the holacracy coming in. And of course, I don't know if, of course, but here in the U.S., there's a very common example, Zappos. They're a shoe retailer mm. that pioneered this concept and said, we're getting rid, rid of all titles. And so my feeling about this is that it's a good idea in moderation. I don't think total holacracy works. Mm. I think at the end of the day, you need someone to sign checks. You need someone who has that big picture vision and can really discern between competing priorities. Both might be valid, but who's going to make the decision about what's truly best for the business at that point in time? And I, I think just to say everyone's project's going to be funded or everyone's going to be able to do what they want. Well, I think that's a recipe for chaos. So there is a reason why corporations evolved like they did with a structure. And I think we need to keep that in mind while also recognizing that we can trim a lot of the fat. It's not necessarily the best thing to have 40 levels in a company either. So rather you can have a few. And, and I do think career pathing is still important to people. Mm. I'd love to be able to say, oh, we're doing all these sideways moves and people are developing cross-functional expertise and they're going out on their own and then they're coming back. And all that is true. But I still think we haven't gotten past people wanting to progress in an organization. So you can't just like throw that out or maybe you can, but I think you're going to lose a lot of people. And Zappos did lose a lot of people. One of the things that's not really talked about with holacracy is not everyone likes it. Mm. <laughs> you're going to, uh, you're going to, if and Zappos did, they offered their people who weren't on board with it to, to go. And a lot of them did. So I think it's a good idea to think about how you can be less bureaucratic and how you can be more inclusive of different perspectives and different ideas and approaches without necessarily throwing out every title. That's my take on it. Interesting. So I think um, I was thinking about this recent interaction I was having with this automaker. Um, so he was he was actually sharing a very interesting perspective. They say that we have been here for like a couple of uh, uh, hundreds of years and, and then we exist. And I think and his perspective was what has kept us alive throughout this uh, evolution is um, our stern reliance to major trends and investing on those, right? So we mm -hmm. we see major right. trends, we invest, acquire, whatever. We just have to be aligned with the the major trends that are mm -hmm. shaping us. But now, uh, what what this uh, what they're seeing is now there are a lot of micro trends. So there is no major trend as such. There are a lot of micro trends happening around you that are somehow making uh, your visibility like you it's it's just messing up with their their way to analyze uh, a trend that that they want to invest in so there are a lot of interesting stuff happening for them so now for those executives who are who are coming from that mindset that okay i i, I need to watch out for like a bunch of uh, these this major trend and, and get behind it vis a vis um, executives who are more open to ideas who are more open to this radical thinking because i think his guy this gentleman's perspective was if if i if someone sees me investing in this weird uh, use cases my stock market will kill me right so my investors would kill me so they would they would react because they don't expect us to be innovative they expect us right. to be just line up behind what has worked for us and just keep exploiting that particular so what would you what would you say to those executives like what how, how would you like what would be your point of view that you want to share with those guys well vishal that goes back to the piloting idea 
So you don't have to transform the whole organization in such a way that your shareholders are even going to notice. I wouldn't recommend doing that anyway, because you just don't know. With new technology, there's all sorts of things. There's adoption, whether people are actually going to get on board and, and do it. There's integration with other existing systems. Um, there's customer pickup. Is it something that the customer actually needs that adds value in the end, or is it just a fancy, shiny new toy? So hmm. you have to, of course, before you even pilot, you should have a business case. That's important. Um, but have a business case about why you want to Im implement or try something and then do it with a small team and on a very limited basis and then be able to prove your success and then gradually expand until it's such a known thing that your shareholders would be like, well, of course, this is mm. the coolest thing we're doing. So we're going to invest in it. But you have to be innovative. Innovation is one of those things that sounds really good on paper. No mm. one will disagree. No, no companies that say, no, we, we don't want to be innovative but the number of companies actually being innovative is pretty low because it's hard to do in practice because you do have these immediate business priorities, which is why I recommend having the group that officially focuses on it because otherwise everyone else is gonna run out of time. And, uh, and I think just making it a priority that you are gonna try things in very small doses and then see, okay, well, this is something that either flew or it didn't fly and maybe mm. it, it requires some tweaking maybe and that there's this whole science now around design thinking we're going to create something and then we're going to iterate on it and we're just going to keep improving it until it meets the need that it was originally set out to do so that's what i would say to them I mean, do not overhaul your organization mm. i would never tell an organization yes let's just let's go automate fifty thousand jobs right now well okay that requires a lot of strategy and a lot of thought and what's going to happen? <laughs> Why don't we try automating a hundred parts of, you know, or sorry, parts of 100 jobs or one part and see how that turns out and then move on from there. This stuff should be step by step. There's no reason to make any kind of rash, huge decision mm. based on what you think might work in the future because we, we just don't know and, and all of this is so new and there's no one to really look to to say, oh, well, you know, that's the person who's got it. It's just a matter of experimentation and agility. Interesting. I think it's it's funny you brought innovation. Uh, I was I was uh, talking to one of, one of the local uh, chief innovation officer in Boston, and he was telling me that, hey, my, I, I, tell, I always tell, joke to my team that, hey, you can be as innovative as you can unless you make a mistake, right? So just yeah. be innovative. So, so that's, the, that's the mentality of uh, many of the corporations today. And I get it because I'm, I'm a risk averse person too. So I don't take huge risks either, but I do try new things all the time. I'm just prepared that it's just on a small stage. Nobody usually knows about the failure, but me, or there's maybe a few customers who are like, what is that? Like, I don't, but it's a pretty limited scope to start. And that way, if it doesn't work out, nobody's the wiser for it. And I, I, I definitely buy that people don't want to make mistakes. And I think as leaders, you have to be tolerant of your people making mistakes, but at the same time, let them not be mistakes that are going to take down the whole business. And you can do that by having that limited scope. Interesting. Well said, well said. And, and um, uh, like one thing that we have seen um, in, in many of these uh, sort of uh, distributed decision management systems or, or this new new organizational uh, sort of ro uh, roadmaps that many of them are um, when they 
how they found their way into the organization is through ceo right so ceo yeah. has this mindset i need to change my organization needs to change and this is i think is not working out from your vantage point or from what you have seen in your personal journey who are the right candidates to to induce that change or to 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 actually re- request that change within the organization so who who are the best candidates for the ceo role or who are the who are the best candidates who can request this change that hey i need we need to change we need to we need to evolve we need we need a way to interact with the millennials it's new workforce we need to create this this uh, i mean i think having a chief and most organizations don't have this but having a chief futures officer um or chief innovation officer is is a cool role that could do a lot of good with exactly what you're asking absent of that what i do see this coming a lot coming out of operations like operations folks want to be informed about this stuff how can they be doing business more efficiently how can they be leveraging human skills versus automation versus other forms of technology but really i think at the end of the day anybody in an organization can push this stuff it's about opening up dialogue and and you could be a junior level employee who organizes i mean i just had this happen a few weeks ago i had a junior level employee organize me to come and do a talk for a couple of hundred people within the organization and a lot of the senior leaders showed up i mean that was somebody who was a couple of years out of college who who had read my book and thought my organization really needs to hear about this so you can do education at any there's no limit that says it has to be a senior level person it could be it could be anyone and in fact going back to that concept of driving your own career becoming a thought leader in this space is it's amazing and there's nothing that's so ultra special about what i do that you can't mm-hmm. also do it <laughs> you just have to educate yourself and read a lot interesting and and um who is the ra- so um uh, if i think that i need this change if i think that something needs to change it's not working out mm-hmm. what steps would you suggest me to take uh that that um like what would be your advice to me so for business processes that aren't working first of all it's it's wise to as a best practice to continually revisit business processes anyway mm-hmm. technology mm-hmm. is changing so quickly that to just say well this is the way we've always done it we're going to keep doing it this way is is really misguided and i find that a lot of organizations are holding on to a lot of manual processes for this reason that they really don't need to be holding on to just because nobody has has the guts to say we've got to change this and maybe have a little bit of a rocky road for a year while we do so and so when it comes to transforming a business process i think you have to identify the problem for one thing and some people are like this process doesn't work but that's way too big what about the process doesn't work exactly and what mm. is the cost to the business in that it doesn't work and how can you quantify that as specifically as possible is it productivity is it uh, client retention is it employee retention is it sales like what what is going wrong as a result of this process being broken and then you want to come up with some relatively easy solutions i i think coming up with pie in the sky solutions is just a quick way to get shut down and you want to again going back to the concept of piloting a new solution developing a prototype and testing it out i think one thing people need to be careful of is that usually there is a gatekeeper of the process mm. Mm. and that person may be very protective might be very defensive particularly if they're an older employee who maybe had a hand in designing the current process 
So you have to be very deferential to people who really have done their best all along and they want what's best for the business too. So you want to show appreciation and consideration for the people who have been driving this. Don't just go to them and be like, this sucks. Um, we have to change it because you're not going to motivate them to collaborate with you. And this goes back to the very first thing I was talking about when I wrote my first mm. book, They Don't Teach Corporate in College, to gain cooperation from the people who you need to be on your side. And a huge part of innovation is showcasing a vision and getting people excited and persuading them and getting buy-in. And if you're not able to do that, if you're just combative about it and you're like, well, we have to change because you know, this is going to ruin our business. Well, you're not going to engender a lot of goodwill. So the way you pro proceed is very important. And, and that's actually where I see traditionally a lot of the millennials having trouble mm. because it's not that the millennials didn't have great ideas. They absolutely did. They, they're so incredibly smart. It was the way they communicated those ideas that was the problem. The boomers and the Xers were not excited to hear the millennials trash talk their stuff. Mm. And it caused a lot of friction. And to this day, millennials in large numbers, I don't want to make an absolute generalization, but in large numbers, they're not trusted. And people are annoyed by them. <laughs> and that's, mm. that's too bad because they are brilliant in most cases, you know? So um, th that's something that when we look at training the new generation that's in town, Generation Z, I hope that we again put an emphasis on those interpersonal skills because it's again, not that the innovation isn't there, it's not that ideas aren't there. And in many cases, it's not that the solution isn't there, but it's just how it is, how it gets across. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Is that right? Interesting. Interesting. And, and what do you think is the role of a leader uh, through this through this kiosk? Like what would how would leader need to adapt um, to this new 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 emerging workforce? So leaders need to be open to new solutions to solving problems. Um, they need to think beyond their immediate business priorities and just be more proactive generally. And this is tough because we, we don't see this a lot in organizations as a whole. We don't see a lot of proactivity. It's mostly about what's on fire and how are we going to fix it. But to not only have a vision around how the organization will need to shift and what new technologies could be employed, but to actually start to do implementations around that. Mm -hmm. So a very simple example is everyone will agree that every leader in town will, or around the globe will agree that we are seeing um, more flex work. Luxwork's mm -hmm. increasing by about 170% every year. So most organizations are, are offering it. What we are not seeing is any kind of systemization around Luxwork. So theoretically, a leader should, it's kind of a no-brainer for a leader to say, we see this massive trend of Luxwork. How are we rolling this out? And how are we executing on this trend in our organization so that we don't get into trouble? Depending on where your, co your company is located, Different countries have rules about this kind of thing. Same thing with contract workers. You can't just do whatever you want with people. You, you have to have some kind of process and they're just setting themselves up to get burned if it's so haphazard. And that's the kind of thing that leaders need to be thinking. Not just how, we have a vision around flex work. We have a vision around remote employees in the distributed workforce, but what are you actually doing to make sure that this works for you? Measurement's another thing. Everybody wants to have the hottest, shiniest new technology. Well, does it work? 
Are people adopting it? Is it actually helping business or is it hindering business by being one more tool people have to use? So measuring the effectiveness of things is very important too. Um, a, a new stat that I just saw, about 97% of global companies offer flex time. Mm -hmm. Only about a quarter of them have any kind of official process around it. So that means the other ones are just winging it. Individual managers are doing what they want. There's no mm -hmm. consistency. And uh, you are setting yourself up to have a problem down the road. So that's what I think leaders should be doing. Not just having the vision, but starting to execute around some of these things that are, are easy. I, I use the example of contract work and flex work because those are relatively easy things to do. Whereas right. figuring out what you're going to automate, that's a little tougher. Um, but that also needs to be done. But start with the stuff that's low-hanging fruit. Interesting. And I think one more thing that I was I was thinking about while you were saying that. So if if you if you look from the employees vantage point, uh, these, these organizations, right? So when say we were uh, coming out uh, from our, our, our grad and, and, and those days, uh, there's still a chance that whatever we have studied will probably end up using some of it uh, in, 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 in the organizational life. But with with the generation today um, that that are graduating now or or graduating last ten years maybe, um, they have um, there's a strong likelihood that whatever they have studied will not be uh, what they'll be end up helping with an organization. It's not right. even invented yet. They're coming up with whatever, right? So, uh, and so what is how would these those workforce prepare themselves uh, for for this organizational culture uh, that that they don't even know what they are seeing right now with this education. Right. And and the, the answer is, is that you go and get your degree and that you accept that it's a temporary thing and you can go out and, and use that degree, but you can't rest on it. The days mm -hmm. of being rest of resting on a degree for your whole career are over. Everyone's going to have to be in this mindset of continuous learning where you're looking at where your job, where the market is going, what clients are asking for, and you're developing adjacent skill sets to support what you might have already studied. And in many cases, it's gonna involve doing something completely new. And we're gonna to see tons and tons and tons of new job categories as a result of machines mm. being integrated in, into business processes. Uh, my favorite one that we're already seeing is the role of the explainer. It sounds simple and it kind of mm. is, but basically mm. if the machine does X, leadership has no idea what the machine does and doesn't know how to trust it and doesn't know how to interpret the data. So the explainer is the person who serves that role, who serves that, is that human face behind the machine to show why this is valuable, why we need to pay attention. It's the person who takes a step back. This is known as the human in the loop phenomena. It's the person who says, actually, this data seems a little off. I don't know that I trust it. I'm going to go back and reevaluate to make sure that this is something that we should be proceeding with. Because just because it came out of a machine doesn't mean it's foolproof, doesn't mean that we have to always listen to what data says. So mm -hmm. these are, and th if you think about these roles, they're gonna be necessary in every single department. <laughs> You're gonna have cool. to have this kind of person. Another very simple example I like to use is social media manager. When mm -hmm. I graduated from college, there was no such thing as a social media manager. Now there's one, at least one in every firm. There are whole firms built around social media. So that's a job category that everyone is familiar with that did not exist 15, 20 years ago. And there's just going to be tons, tons more. So um, we're going to have to be in the mode of 
thinking about what's needed and then rapidly acquiring the skill set to make sure you can do it. And everyone is going to have to do it. There's going to be no one who's going to be immune to having to, to keep learning. And that's different than in the past. Interesting. And and so I think um, a segue into that. So, so we, we did um, a survey internally with um, new and, and uh, so they are millennials or Generation Z. So we asked these folks, uh, I think one thing that was clearly emerging was that when we there's still there's still chance with folks like us we could have a career entire career in in a company or maybe two mm-hmm. but uh, with the new generation they would be going through multiple companies as 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 throughout throughout their career so there is the idea of career development uh, it which was not very serious before is now extremely serious for these mm-hmm. these candidates and we yeah. we said okay let's let us ask these people uh, how many of them actually ask their employer, which they're interviewing with, that what would the employer do to keep them employable, not to give them just employment, but to ensure right. that they, when they go out of it, they will be still relevant for the market. Yeah, and that's, that's right. To, and to our surprise, um, or, or to our not our surprise, like we get almost zero, very close to zero, that who actually ask for a for a company that they don't even know this this concept of hey, I need to ask my employer that what would they do? They're doing a cool thing right now, but how would they ensure that I would be uh, the coolest that they would have uh, throughout throughout my journey in that company? Because that's good for the company too. So what what is what would what is your vantage point? What is your perspective on this? Well, first of all, I, I agree with you that companies need to keep people employable, and not the least of which they're going to want to move their own people around. Mm. So mm. they're going to need to have mm. additional skill sets. Um, there will still be people who work at companies for a while. It's just mm. going to be fewer people than they are now. So there's going to be more contract workers, more people with their own businesses who are who are um, free agents. But there will still be people who work at companies, but they're not going to be doing the same thing for years mm-hmm. and years and years on end. So companies need to get in the mindset of training people continuously to develop new skills. So it's in their best interest, but it's also, as you mentioned, it's a retention issue. Employees mm-hmm. are not going to want to work someplace that doesn't invest in their professional development because they're hearing from people like you and me, you better go get some more professional development. And if you don't have the time or resources to do that because you're so caught up in your day job, then you're, you're not going to be too happy about that. So companies need to, to take a role. Um, one area that I am strongly encouraging companies to take a serious role in is the acquisition of what are known as applied technology skills. So hmm. what that means is the ability to manipulate uh, people, processes, data, and devices to make more effective business decisions. So it's not necessarily knowing how to code yourself or knowing how to build an application, but knowing that there's technology there that can help you do it and that you can get your hands on that technology, you can roll it out. And it's knowing that you're going to do a pilot with a specific technology that's that's mm-hmm. going to help a business process. It's, it's even knowing how to do that is an applied technology skill. So that's something everyone in every department of every age in every industry is going to need to have. And, and right now, companies are, are under the uh, unfortunate predicament of no one's been trained on those in school. No one. Mm. None of their existing workforce has those skills. So unfortunately for the people who are currently employed, the onus is on the company in many cases to start training these people. And then of course, with applied technology skills, it's always changing. So just because you train once doesn't mean you're scot-free for the rest of 
that person's career, you, you probably have to revisit it every two years, two to three years or so. So you've got to have an infrastructure for that. And the best companies are, are looking at these things. Interesting. And I think, and, and one, one other um, very interesting conversation that we find ourselves more frequently than we like to is this idea of automating. Uh, doing more with less, right? So, and I think whenever we ask about the motivation behind that, it's it is that uh, bottom line. It is that that cost, right? And and when when sort of whenever we talk to um, many of these companies about, hey, how many how much time does it took uh, taken you to hire an individual? They say, okay, x x months, and he had been with this company for x years. Now I will replace him with maybe a robot uh, that can do it for half the price. I said, okay, but what about the other skills? The other skills that soft skills, leadership so skills, right. understanding of the cultural skills. And they have uh, almost no answer. And, and, and I think one gentleman, he actually put it, put it the best. He said, market doesn't care. Market doesn't care until a mistake is made. Yes, right. I, 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 exactly. So now what would you say to those individuals like and, and i'm sure you must be already uh, preaching to the choir on on that that yeah how would you how would you what would you convince those guys like how should they look at this future of work yeah so and so this goes back to the managerial skills the leadership skills that we were talking about before i mean it's very complex you can't mm. just say we're going to automate these jobs and be done with it um you have for one thing i'll just cite the statistics behind this According to the latest McKinsey Global Institute study, about 60% of all occupations will be affected by automation in the next 10 years. But if you take that a step further, only 30% of the tasks within those occupations mm. will be automated, leaving you with exactly what you're saying. Two-thirds of the job still needs to be done by a human. So what do you do with that two-thirds if you're just going to automate the job? Um, you're still stuck with a lot of things that can't really be done by machines or can't be done effectively by machines. And when I talk about mistakes being made, um, the best, most salient example I have of this, and I use it all the time because I think it's awesome, <laughs> is what happened with United Airlines um, here in the mm. States two years ago. Um, their algorithm told them that they needed to pull that guy off the plane and they needed to send their flight attendants to this location because they would lose money otherwise. And everyone just blindly listened to the algorithm the because the data mm. said that we got to get these people from point A to point B. And nobody thought about, well, gee, how's it going to look if we physically remove a customer, a paying customer from a flight? Mm. And this is what's going to happen. Machines don't care. Machines don't think about reputation. They don't think about brand. They don't think about public outcry. You know, they don't think about that kind of stuff. And more and more of this stuff's going to happen because we've got to have a human in the loop, a human who is watching out for these processes and saying the data may say this but we're going to get in huge hot water if we if we listen to it so that's my favorite example because i think more of that mm. unfortunately is to come true no i think that's 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 a and thank you for sharing that that that's very critical to and very very good example uh mm -hmm. to put it here so uh let's spend a few minutes on your book humanity works okay so um what is the premise behind this? Like, well, what, what, why, why write that book? So Humanity Works, and, and the subtitle is called Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future, is, a, is an optimistic book. That's what makes it a little bit different. There's been a lot mm. of hand-wringing mm. and hysteria around robots taking all the jobs, and you can already tell from this conversation so far that I, I don't buy it. Uh, mm. I think there's 
never been a better time to be a human in in trying to find meaningful work and, and execute on that meaningful work. And so Humanity Works looks at the future of work with a structure that starts from what I call the space shuttle view. So if you're up mm. in space in a shuttle looking down on the earth, what are some of the larger trends demographically that are shaping who's available to work and where? And mm. then you drill down to the societal level, how is society mm. changing? How is how a workforce structures changing in general, then you move to the individual organization, how are organizations changing, then you move to the level of the individual manager and their employees, so what skills do they have, what skills do they need, how do their careers need to be customized, and uh, that's that's how we really make the book relevant to everybody from a CEO to someone who just graduated college or is still in college and is trying to Mm. figure out how can I build my skill set to be a more marketable and competitive employee. But the the tone of it is just very positive because I think it's actually great. And I think if we can find the right way to integrate technology into what we already do well, then we're going to, then we're going to do great. This is not the first time in history that humanity has been faced with kind of these technologies where we're like, Oh God, this is going to transform society as we know it. And we're always happy that that Mm. happened. We were happy during the industrial revolution. We're happy when automobiles came out, we were happy with phones. I mean, these are all, this has happened before. There's nothing to be alarmed about, but I do think it requires a little bit of planning because it's change. It's change. Human beings don't like change. So hopefully the Mm. book gives people some food for thought. It's very practical in that there, I want to leave people with specific things that they can walk out and do right away. Even if you're just an individual manager, maybe you're middle management, you don't really have a say in anything other than your immediate team. Well, what are some of the things you can be doing with your employees to to really be a better manager in this new climate? And that's what we try and do with the book. So interesting, interesting, and and thank you for walking us um, through through that. So uh, we're at the tail end of the conversation, and let's spend a few minutes on on you. Uh, so we ask we ask all of our guests um, to share. Say one to three qualities that have really helped shape what you are today. Like, what would those qualities be? What would you call it? Um, oh, I love this question. I think agility is probably the most important one. The willingness mm-hmm. to say, all right, you know what? This isn't working, so I'm going to try something else. I've done that numerous times throughout my career where I've tried a bunch of things, thrown a bunch of things against the wall to see what would stick. Sometimes nothing sticks. Sometimes I think I'm good at something or I think something's going well and it it changes on a dime. Sometimes a a tactic or a strategy takes a little bit longer to take off. Every time I publish with a book, I do it differently so that I can learn from my experiences. So I think that's um, important. I think rapport building is still really important. Humans want to work with other humans. And so developing those relationships and trying to help out people when you can has hopefully helped me move forward in my career by just being generous and really understanding where people are coming from and having empathy for them because everybody really wants the best thing. There are very few people out there who are evil, who don't want, you know, the the best outcome. So um, I think those, that rapport building empathy um, is really important. And then I would say the last thing is conscientiousness. Um, The the Mm. willingness to just dig in and keep doing what needs to be done every day because there is no magic formula for finding work that is meaningful every single mm. minute of every day. There's a reason it's called work. Otherwise, it would be called fun. 
And I, I think that's something that I've always said to people, and it continues to be true. Just because this is a great time to be an employee doesn't mean you're not an employee. There's going to be aspects of your job that you like and aspects that you don't like, and it's going to happen whether you're a full-time employee or a contract worker. People I hear all the time, I want to have my own business so I don't have to deal with the BS. Well, guess what? Mm. There's a whole other set of BS mm. when you work for yourself. So just mm. be prepared for that stuff and figure out ways to cope with it. Be conscientious about it, and you'll figure out what you want to do. If you're a leader who wants to be invested in the future of work, start with a pilot, be conscientious about it, keep your eye on mm. the prize, and you'll eventually get to where you need to go. I think, uh, and thank you for sharing, I think beautifully said. And one thing I, I always envy uh, about people like you. So I think it's it's beautiful. So you study the future. You study where the organization needs to be. And now how many of us needs to understand that, right? So the, the satisfaction of, hey, maybe I can help you out and, and being helped. I think it's um, uh, kudos to you. And, and, and thank you. Thank you for spending your time on that. So uh, other question I, I, I need your perspective on um, about you is, so we ask all of our guests to share some of their favorite reads, some of the book that they like, that they love reading, that they want to share. Like, mm -hmm. do you have a, any book that you can share that you 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 like? Yeah, my classics are um, How to Win Flat Friends and Influence People um, by Dale mm -hmm. Carnegie and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I was fortunate to be mentored by Stephen Covey when he was still alive several years ago, and those are the fundamental human lessons <laughs> that we all need to learn mm -hmm. that are not going to change no matter how long and how far into the future we go. So those are the classics. Um, recent books that I like, um, Heart of the Machine by my friend Richard Yonk is a great one. He talks about effective computing, which is the recognition and interpretation of human emotion by machines. Um, I like The Second Machine Age. That one's a couple years old. I believe in Jolson and McAfee, um, but it gives a nice... Like little overview of, of where we see machines fitting in and why this is not doomsday. I also like they're pretty positive about their um, <laughs> their their point of view as well. So so I like that. And um, I don't know. My friend Dan um, Shabell just put out a good book called Back to Human. Like let's focus on our how to focus on our human talent. And so that's a good one too. Beautiful, and thank you for sharing a good list. Um, uh, and uh, last but not the least. Um, if you want um, the listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be your closing remark uh, to our listeners and viewers? I hope people take away that the future is not something that just happens to us, that mm -hmm. we shape it every day with the decisions that we make and what how we invest our own time and our organization's resources. And everybody has a role in this. This is not something that is reserved for C-level executives who are in a boardroom. This is something where we can all make an impact. So look out for your own career and look out for your organization by finding ways to learn more about these trends that affect your business and integrate them on a small scale. Beautiful. With that, um, Alex, thank you again so much for being really uh, candid with us, generous with us, and sharing your journey and sharing your perspective and wish you nothing but luck on the book and your practice. And um, love to have you back on the on the conversation talking about maybe your sequel um, to uh, uh, Humanity Works. And um, whenever you're in Boston, do let, let us know. I'd love to meet you at some point. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Take care. We'll talk soon. Uh, I thought I was sick of home.
home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on the